0: As you may see on the screen behind me, we are about to begin a brand new sermon series here on Sunday evenings through uh, Peter's letters. We're going to go through, walk through 1st and 2nd Peter, Uh, if I can get there. Yeah, 1st and 2nd Peter. Uh, I had, though, um, Nathan read that sermon from Acts chapter 2, Uh, one, because it's a wonderful passage of Scripture, but two, I think what we're going to find is that a lot of what Peter has in his letters are actually things that find themselves in Peter's life and in Peter's sermons. And that's really what I want to do tonight as we introduce this sermon series, as we kind of jump into these letters. What I want to do tonight is actually to give you sort of an overview, an, ex- uh, an examination, if you will, of Peter's life. Because I think to in order to understand First and Second Peter, first I think we have to understand... Just who Peter is, understand Peter's heart. And to understand Peter's heart, I think we have to understand and sort of get a good glimpse at the transformation that happens in Peter's life. To me, that's fundamental to understanding the man behind these letters. Uh, he is a man that perhaps we all are familiar with. <laughs> we, there's a lot that we can learn from Peter's life. And such is why I'm really excited to go through uh, this series. Just to give you an overview of these letters, the first one, first 1 uh, Peter was written in about the early 60s A.D., so right around the uh, right around thirty years after Christ uh, was crucified and ascended into heaven. And it's written uh, right around either right just before or at the very beginning of the great persecutions of Christians under Emperor Nero. And so you have that as sort of the backdrop to what Peter is going to write as he is writing to uh, these churches, these churches that would reside in modern-day Turkey. Here, Peter, though, is uh, quite definitively the author of these letters. In 1 Peter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me, if you do some research, how some scholars uh, would want to sort of try and make this letter uh, to someone else, uh, ascribe the authorship to someone else other than Peter. I don't really know why they want to do that or, or how they even do that. <laughs> the reason that most often pops up, if you look at it, is the fact that the, the, the quote, theology of First and Second Peter is too similar to the Apostle Paul, and so therefore it can't be Peter. Um, that's a really strange reason why it can't be Peter, because Peter and Paul were pretty much the same guy. <laughs> uh, they had very similar hearts and they preached the same gospel. So it should follow in line that they would preach the same theology. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to me that they want to make that argument because it's clearly Peter writing these letters. And I think to suggest otherwise is to ignore or to... Maybe turn the blind eye to the arc that happens in Peter's life, the arc of Peter's life that we find here in the scriptures. Because, as I said before, these letters that Peter writes here to these churches are really the the outworking of the transformation that happens in his life. Is they are the sort of proof and this sort of expression of the radical change that, has, that happens in Peter's heart and soul and mind in the aftermath of the resurrection. Which is what I kind of want to focus on tonight. You know, Peter is a really fascinating character. And actually, if you just think about it, he, well, number one, he's probably my favorite Bible character. Out of all the different figures that pop up in Scripture, I always find myself identifying with the Apostle Peter. Maybe he's yours too, I don't know. But I think it's one of the, really one of the main reasons why I think we can identify with Peter is because there is so much of Peter in the New Testament, if you think about it. If you, if you think about all of the different gospel narratives, you actually find Peter is involved in almost every single one. Every single story has Peter at the center of it, either speaking up first, uh, speaking before he thinks most often, or being right involved with the heat of the action, so to speak. There are more stories, more anecdotes, more little instances of the Apostle Peter than all the other apostles um, pretty much combined. And that's why he's a pivotal character to understand. He's a pivotal and central character to the gospel. And believe it or not, uh, uh, he is actually mentioned first in all four lists of the twelve apostles. It mentions Peter is the first one, which is uh, really where the sort of tradition is that he was likely the sort of understood or unspoken leader of the twelve apostles. And if you uh, just looking at some different instances that happen in Peter's life, you can see just the centrality that he plays to the story of Jesus as we find it in the Gospels. Remember one of the very first instances he pops up in is that miracle haul of fish. You remember where they're, they're fishing all night and they can't get anything. And, and Jesus tells them to try their nets on the other side. And there's this huge, massive haul of fish. And Peter there actually makes a confession to the Lord Jesus right there in that instance. And then if you go to another really famous moment in the story of Jesus, we have the healing of Jairus' daughter. And Peter is one of the three that is able to go into the room where he raises this young girl from the dead. An amazing scene. Of course, another scene that is most famous in Peter's life is the scene from Matthew chapter 14 where he walks on water. Isn't it fascinating? It's fascinating to me that of all the 12, it's Peter that is the one that says, "If you are the Christ, I will let me c- come out to you." <laughs> and of course, he does. And of course, he sinks fast. <laughs> Because he takes his eyes off of Jesus. But I still find it fascinating that Peter was the one gutsy enough to make that call. To walk on that water. And of course too another moment where he is sort of brought into the inner circle. Is the moment of Jesus' transfiguration from Mark chapter 9. He along with James and John are brought up to the, mount, the top of that mountain. there they see the fullness of God's glory. Of Jesus' glory on display. Another instance is when he's invited to pray with, with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his crucifixion. Peter plays a central role in the gospel. It's evidenced very clearly in the passages that Pastor Nathan read, Acts chapter 2. As the church is starting, and almost all of the the sermons that you will find in the very first several chapters of Acts will be sermons that are delivered by the Apostle Peter. He was a pivotal character in establishing the practice and the doctrine of the church and really evidencing what the gospel means. You can search the scriptures, and almost always Peter is a character that comes up. And what's interesting to me is because of that, there's a lot that we know about this man. There's a lot of data, so to speak. There's a lot of examples of who Peter is. We know him as sort of this impetuous guy. This guy who is almost impulsive, hasty with his words. He always is the first to speak. I imagine any times where it says the disciples spoke, I imagine it being Peter being the one voicing that. Especially that time, I think it's uh, Mark chapter 8, if you remember that story where Jesus has just fed the 4,000 and they're going across the Sea of Galilee again. And when they're on the sea, remember, it says the disciples complained, they grumbled, that they they, they hadn't brought enough bread. I I, I imagine that being Peter speaking up, complaining, there's no food for all of us on this little boat. (laughs) Even though he had just fed 4,000 people. (laughs) Peter always thinking with his stomach. A man I can identify with, I suppose. But he's always first to speak. The most famous instance, I'll just you can you can leave your I'm in first Peter. You can go to Mark chapter 8 with me just to see a couple of these instances. Mark 8 is the famous instance of Peter speaking up perhaps before he should have. Mark chapter 8 verse 27. This of course is Peter's confession. The confession that he is the Christ. So it appears in verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples saying unto them, whom do men say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist. But some say Elias and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Here we have that instance. (laughs) Peter, not really sure of, of what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about death and resurrection. Peter is openly speaking, perhaps without thinking, without uh, he's doing so hastily. I imagine, though, in all of these instances, this is just pure conjecture, just pure me reading something into the scriptures, which is just that I imagine Jesus smirking every single time Peter spoke up rather hastily. I think it kind of made him chuckle. A little bit, because I think he knew that Peter was well-meaning. Even when, when Jesus says here in this passage, Get behind me, Satan. I think Jesus was rather keen on the fact that Peter was so passionate and impulsive. Jesus was just looking to channel that passion. Channel that impulsion to speak. Channel it with his grace, which I think is what happens later on in Peter's life. I think as we go through this... As I have been studying the life of Peter, I find him to be one of the most relatable and lovable characters. But because he is always putting his foot in his mouth, so to speak, saying things before he thinks his blunders are on full display. You cannot read the scriptures and cannot see Peter's blunders, his errors. They're always sort of evident. Most, I think, evident in this gospel of Mark. Which, as we, when we examined that book, we identified it as sort of Peter's gospel. As with John Mark working very closely with the apostle in writing this gospel. But I think, in a sense, his errors are sort of endearing to... They're endearing to me. The fact that his failures are very open. I can see myself a lot in him. He's a sympathetic character. But we know, of course, that his time with Jesus radically changed his life. This is actually evident from the very beginning. Go with me to John chapter 1 and look at verse 40. This is one of the very first instances where Peter pops up. And right off the bat, he is given a new name, which I think is indicative of what Jesus would eventually do in Peter's life. Notice John 1, verse 40. It says, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto them, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is, by interpretation, a stone. It's fascinating to me that as soon as Simon Peter is brought to before Jesus, he changes his name. Simon actually it comes from a name that means a learner, a student, a pupil. And he changes his name to Peter or Cephas, which means a stone here or a rock. This, I think, is suggestive of what Jesus would do through Peter. Jesus would make this man of such passion, such compulsion, such uh, hastiness. He would stabilize that man. Jesus would be the stabilizing rock upon which Peter could find rest. And throughout Peter's life, I think we see that happening before our eyes. This man of unstable passions, this man of of complete sort of impetuity, he is made to be still. He is made to be, yes, like a stone because of Jesus. And because, and actually, I think for Peter to learn that, the way that Peter learns the fact that he can be stable is by first learning his own instability. And this to me is the arc that happens in Peter's life. He comes from a point where he thinks perhaps a little bit highly of himself. And he comes to learn very profoundly, very very sort of intimately, the fact that he is unstable. He is not the rock of his own life. See, after spending all this time with Jesus, <laughs> he still didn't. He still didn't really learn. We were noting when we were going through the sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. Just how somewhat dense the apostles were. They were sort of not really getting what Jesus was talking about. When he's talking about raising, uh, talking about resurrection. Talking about uh, raising this temple after three days. I think this is clearly seen in the passage we just read out of Mark 8 where he denies the fact that Jesus has to go to the cross. He's rebuking him for that. What do you mean, Jesus, that you have to die? It's really interesting if you go to the same parallel passage actually in Mark chapter 6 or excuse me, Matthew chapter 16. Because here we have that famous, famous account. Mark 16 and verse 21 is the same sort of Passage where Peter rebukes him, rebukes Christ about this idea that he has to die on the cross. Which, to me, what's most fascinating, as it includes here in Matthew chapter 16, that Peter's rebuke of Jesus comes in his confession of Jesus as Lord, comes on the heels of Jesus' affirmation of that very confession. Look at verse 13. The same sort of thing when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples. He's talking about who he is. And then verse 16. And Simon Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And here we have that glorious moment where Jesus affirms what Peter says. And says, verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have this wonderful confirmation. What Peter has just confessed, thou art the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, and on that rock I will build my church. And a few months later, Peter. One of his blunders, many blunders, (laughs) rebukes Jesus for talking about the cross. I find it interesting that it's so quickly after that. It's just very indicative of Peter's life. But you know, I'm not sure, I'm not exactly sure why there's so much conversation and controversy surrounding this passage. Mark 16, 18 specifically. There's a lot of talk, perhaps, not a lot nowadays, perhaps, but there's many who have varying interpretations of what Jesus means by, on this rock, I will build my church. You know, some people say it was the literal rock on which they were standing, as if he was going to found his church on that stone, so to speak. Maybe. Others say it was Peter's confession, on the rock that Jesus is the Christ, that's the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church. Others say it was Jesus himself. Some will even say that it's Peter. This is sort of where the Roman Catholic Church certainly identifies it. That Peter is the rock of the church. You know, they trace the line, their line of popes back to this moment. Making Peter the first sort of bishop or pope of Rome, interestingly enough. Which I think is interesting to me because that idea is completely unfounded when you come to Scripture. Because if you go, uh, if you look at Peter's life, I think that he understood that he was not the rock. For my own part, I think it's Jesus himself is the rock upon which this church will stand. And it is also included in that confession that Peter makes that he is the Christ maybe Peter misunderstood that moment in the moment when he was right there. And Jesus says those words to him on this rock, I will build my church. Maybe Peter was confused. Maybe he wasn't sure what he meant. Maybe that's why later on, if you go in Mark chapter 14, remember, he's so overly confident that I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. I'm not going to I'm not going to forsake you. I will even go to death with you. Maybe that's why he's overly confident. Maybe he's thinking, yeah, I'm the rock. I'm the rock of the church. I'm not going to fail you, but I think he knew when he wrote the letters, when he wrote both 1 and 2 Peter, he knew. He knew exactly who the rock of the church was. Because look at, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 4. Jumping a little bit ahead in sort of the scriptures, but I want you to see. See that Peter was founding these letters on what he knew firsthand, first-hand experience. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. But unto them which be o disobedient, a stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they also were appointed." Peter knew. The chief cornerstone, that rock upon which the church stands, it's not him. It's not anything in his ability. It was Jesus. He was sure of that. He's the cornerstone on which men stumble. He's the cornerstone which men refuse. Jesus talks about that, by the way, in Mark chapter 10, I think it is. And why do I think that? I think it's because Peter had been through suffering. Peter had been through the low points of learning his own instability. He knew that he couldn't be counted on, much less relied on to be the, quote, rock of the church. He had been through the crucible of suffering. Crucible is an interesting word. It actually means sort of a ceramic or metal container in which metals... Alloys are sort of put in, are subjected to extreme temperatures in order to purify them, in order to make them pure. And it's interesting to me because an alternate definition of that word crucible means a situation of severe trial in which different elements interact, leading to the creation of something new. I see that in Peter. That all of these different elements come into Peter's life and they create something new. The man we know as the Apostle Peter. He references this in First Peter one verses six and seven. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We have that image of a of a of a, a metallurgist putting that metal into the crucible and heating it up beyond what it normally be heated to melt away all of the impurities and when it comes out it is pure as he says here pure gold this is what happened with Peter the heat of the crucible was learning his own instability we know this from that most infamous scene i think in all of peter's life Mark 14, where he denies the Lord Jesus. This, I think, was, to me, as I look at Peter's life, this was his, so to speak, crucible of suffering. This moment when all of the heats, the heats of his association with Jesus was the hottest. Jesus has been arrested. Jesus is being accused of being a traitor, being an insurrectionist. He is being tried in that very moment. And remember, Peter is accused of associating himself with Jesus. And he denies him three times, and the third time it says he denies him vehemently with much cursing. Peter, as a fisherman, his old sort of sailor mouth probably came out. <laughs> I don't know that guy. I don't know that Jesus. I have never even met him. I don't. Don't associate me with that criminal, that traitor. You can see Peter in that moment. I think about that moment often. The moment of Peter's betrayal. Tradition holds that after the rooster crowed that Jesus looked at him. That Jesus and Peter met eyes. <laughs> I can't imagine what was going through Peter's mind. He remembered in that moment that before the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny me three times. And after the third time, he remembers as the rooster makes it sound. He remembers. <laughs> that just as Jesus said. Even though he had spoken so strongly that nothing could make me deny you, Jesus. I will even go to death with you. And here he is. <laughs> I don't even know that guy the defeat and devastation in peter's heart and life i can i can't even imagine the weight on him must have crushed him like an anvil this is peter's crucible of suffering he learns firsthand how unstable he is how unstable is he he denies the one that he claims to believe He outright rejects Jesus in Jesus' most dire moment. It's a crucible of suffering. But just like in these verses, in verses 6 and 7 out of 1 Peter, just as that gold is taken out of the fire, that's the moment of purification. And what is that moment for Peter? Well, go with me really quick to John chapter 21. This is after the resurrection. We have this wonderful scene. I just love it so much. Peter and 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 Jesus and the disciples are eating they're eating the breakfast on the shore. And look at verse 15. John twenty one, fifteen. So when they had dined, Jesus, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Thou knowest that I love thee, Jesus saith to them, feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by thee what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. I love this passage. Three times Jesus asked the question, do you love me? Three times to answer Peter's three denials. (laughs) Peter's being purified in this moment. Peter's being brought out of the crucible of suffering. The suffering of denying his Lord, the one he has spent so much time with. The one he cherishes, the one that he claims that he loves. And what I love is that here he is being brought back in. Not just into Jesus' fold. He is being brought back in here to this moment. To be a shepherd. An under-shepherd of Jesus' sheep. This is a wonderful message. To know who the rock of the church is. It's a wonderful message too. Because even after denying Jesus... Jesus was desirous of restoring Peter. This, by the way, uh, you don't have to turn there. But remember in Mark chapter 16 and verses 6 and 7. Where, uh, where the, 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 the women go to the tomb and they find it empty. And the angel gives them a message to go back to the disciples with. That Jesus isn't here. He's already gone before you into Galilee. Remember what he says. Tell the other disciples and Peter. In Mark's gospel, is specifically uh, mentioned that the angel called out Peter by name. And I think that's so indicative of Jesus' heart. He singles out Peter because he knew what Peter had done. <laughs> and the weight that he must have felt, the weight of all that guilt, the weight of all that shame for pretending that he would never deny Jesus and then he denies him. And he calls him out. Bring Peter, make sure he's there. Because I want him to see what type of Savior I am. I'm the type of Savior that holds on to those who even deny me. This this is our Jesus, the rock of the church. Here, as he's bringing Peter back into fellowship, he's evidencing, I think, one of the most glorious truths of the gospel. The truth that I think is undercurring all of the other ones. That even if our faith is shaken, God's grip of us is unshakable. God's hold on us is omnipotent. He's the hand that we rest in, that we stand on. He's the rock that we find our church being built on because He is unshakable. The commentator B.H. Carroll, a famous Southern Baptist many hundreds of years ago, he wrote this When the devil went to sift Peter, he shook Peter's hold loose, and it didn't take much to do it, but he did not. Shake Christ loose from Peter. <laughs> I love that. As much as Satan wanted to get a hold of Peter's life, he couldn't shake Christ off of Peter. He couldn't shake off Jesus' grip of that man. These are the moments I think that drive Peter's entire heart and life and ministry. It's that moment. Where he is in the bottom of the crucible of suffering, in the everything is most intense. and when he comes out and he's being purified by Christ, he knows for sure how unrock-like, if I can say that, <laughs> how not stable he was. He knew firsthand how fickle his own faith was, how frail his own courage was. And he knew. He knew that Jesus was the rock on which the church stands. On which all of our faith is resting on. Alexander McLaren, the Great Order, he says, No man has a vigorous Christian faith who has not been very near utter despair. Your faith is measured by your (laughs) self-despair. So long as you are despairing, so to speak, of your own abilities and you're resting in Jesus' faith. That is a true Christian faith. I think this is what Peter learns by experience. That Jesus' embrace of him will always be stronger and more uh, enduring than his embrace even of Jesus. And this is what fills the heart and mind of Peter, fills his letters, fills his sermons. That the rock on which the church stands is not our faithfulness for Jesus. It's Jesus' faithfulness for us. Because he is the Christ. The chief cornerstone. The one on whom everything is built and rests and finds its unity. This is Peter's heart. He had been transformed. He had been utterly changed. By this love that would not let him go, by this love that could not be loosed from him. And it brings us from that impetuous Peter down into the Peter of denial, all the way into the Peter of all of the sermons in these letters, the Peter who confesses and who's so emboldened by the gospel. So much so. I don't know how true it is with history. But church tradition holds that Peter was crucified later in his life. But he was crucified upside down. Because he thought, he felt that he could not be crucified in the same way as his savior. I don't know how true that story is. But I do know that he was martyred for his faith. This man who at one time said, I will even go to death with you. And then denied Jesus. Was eventually brought out onto the other side and was willing, yes... To eventually die for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus changes hearts. Solidifies souls. To find courage. To find hope. To find strength. To find fortitude. For all of the days ahead. I love this passage. Let me read it to you. It's from Alexander McLaren's sermon. He's talking about that moment when Peter is singled out by the angel. McLaren, Alexander McLaren, he takes a whole sermon from that little story, which I love. And he's talking about just how that moment proves God's love. Proves God's love because Jesus wanted Peter back into fellowship. McLaren writes. We cannot get away from the sweep of his love. Wander we ever so far. His arm is too strong for us to shake it off. His love is too divine for us to damn it back. Our sin cannot check the flow of his love. Christ's love is extended to us. And no sin can stay it. No fall of ours can make him despair. He will not give us up. He waits to be gracious. Such is the Savior that Peter knew, that Peter testified to. And he was so adamant about it. Why? Because he had been changed by that love. It altered in the course of his life. We mentioned it. You can go to Mark 16 and you can go to Acts 1 and 2. There's a different Peter. He had seen Jesus he had been brought back into fellowship with him. That love that Christ had extended to him that could not be loosed even by Satan's temptation, it changed Peter. It sustained him even in suffering and persecution. And that same love that changed Peter is the same love that changes and saves and sustains you and me even to this day. It's the love here that he's going to everywhere expound in these letters. Peter's letters are letters of hope to a church that had been ravaged and tattered by persecution. And what is he reminding them of? He's reminding them of a love that will not let them go. That is found in a hope that is alive. He was so adamant about it. Because he, he had known this hope. Because it was Jesus, the rock of the church. I pray that we too would find our rock in this Jesus, that no matter what is going on in our lives, that no matter what type of suffering we're enduring, what type of crucible we are in, that we find our rock in this Christ, this one who is the cornerstone that we stand on with feet firmly planted. Because Jesus is the rock. He is the one that we rest in. He's the rock upon which the church stands. Let us pray.